Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. I'm not sure when politics became a dirty word, but there was a time when it was a noble profession, when the best and the brightest sought to serve, and when differences of opinion were about how to better the lives of people, not just those at the top, those at the margins, or those in power. To successfully engage in politics took a very special skill set that was about understanding people and what they wanted and forming coalitions to compromise and get things done, how far we have fallen from this ideal. It was Bismarck who said that politics was the art of the possible, and few understood that better than the 32nd President of the United States, Franklin Roosevelt. My guest, Robert Dalek, takes a deep dive into the political Roosevelt in his new book, Franklin Roosevelt, A Political Life. Robert Dalek is an esteemed presidential biographer, the author of books on Nixon, Kennedy, and Lyndon Johnson. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and Vanity Fair. And it is my pleasure to welcome Robert Dalek here to talk about Franklin D. Roosevelt, A Political Life. Robert Dalek, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's great to have you here. You know, we hear over and over again that there's no real preparation for the presidency. Talk about that with respect to Roosevelt and the skills and the talents that he came with and the way in which those skills and talents grew and changed during the course of his presidency. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, he was a political animal, so to speak, from the get-go. He had as a model his distant cousin, Theodore Roosevelt, who had been uh, a successful, highly popular president in the uh, early years of the 20th century. And uh, Franklin was part of this patrician class that very much thought they were entitled to uh, be leaders of the country. And uh, he was an only child and uh, was very much indulged, so to speak, a privileged young man who uh, went to Groton, uh, the most uh, prestigious uh, private school in New England, uh, went on to Harvard. And, uh, of course, uh, he ran for uh, New York State uh, Senate and uh, won a position there, a surprising victory in a largely uh, Republican district. He ran as a Democrat. His father had been a Democrat. His father had been a Grover Cleveland conservative Democrat. And uh, so FDR begins with this uh, career in the upstate New York, Albany, New York uh, uh, State Senate. And uh, But he's ambitious, and he wants to uh, walk in the path of his uh, distant cousin, Theodore, leading to the presidency. And of course, it's almost uncanny that he was able to do that. And of course, what makes the story so amazing is not just the fact that, like his cousin Theodore, he became assistant secretary of the Navy and then became governor of New York, winning two terms, but that he did this after uh, the governorship and then the presidency, after he had been afflicted with polio, which uh, immobilized him and uh, took away his ability to walk. He was decisively handicapped and spent the rest of his life from the age 39 in a uh, wheelchair. And of course, if uh, anyone visits the Franklin Roosevelt Memorial here in Washington, the first thing they see when they walk into the memorial 
is uh, a statue of FDR sitting in that uh, wheelchair. But I think his polio <clears throat> created in him a tremendous sense of, uh, of sympathy, of regard for uh, those who are in some way infirmed or suffering or losing their ability to uh, maneuver and function in a full fashion. And that's, in a sense, what he uh, identified with during the uh, Great Depression, that uh, the uh, Depression comes along in the uh, 1929 to 1932. He runs for the office of president, and uh, he promises that we will be uh, uh, prophets of a new order and that uh, he will give the country a new deal. Uh, he didn't know exactly what he was going to do, but he was, above all, a pragmatist, and he saw his administration as a, an experiment in government, and that uh, this welfare state that he put into place was very much the product of his uh, pragmatic approach to the world and uh, and also an understanding that he wasn't necessarily curing the depression which of course the new deal didn't it was industrial mobilization which uh, went so far to uh, take the country bring the country out of that depression but that he was doing something in a sense more important he was uh, humanizing the american industrial system he was uh, giving people a, uh, a, a safety net and that uh, uh, the first hundred days of his presidency, uh, 15 major pieces of legislation, the banks had been going belly up and people were losing their life savings. And he puts in place the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. There's the FERA, the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, the CCC, the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps. Uh, these alphabet agencies, as they came to be called, but they were reaching out to help people because there was 25% unemployment in the country. Uh, some people were close to starvation. Uh, men would haunt uh, the uh, backyards of restaurants in uh, uh, the Depression, uh, picking through the garbage to see if there was a leftover food they could, they could eat or bring home to their uh, family. Uh, young women in the textile industries in New England would uh, work for seven and a half cents an hour. If they could get a 10-hour day, they relished it because uh, 75 cents was a good bit of money for them to bring home. Prices has collapsed. And uh, so uh, the country was in a state of terrible crisis. And uh, Roosevelt gave it hope. Uh, and hope also with what he called the fireside chats, uh, the talks he would give on Sunday evenings to uh, the country in which he would imagine himself sitting in the living room with uh, the family as a paterfamilias, a, uh, a friend of the family, and that uh, he was concerned about your welfare, your well-being. And it worked, because after he died, somebody stopped Mrs. Roosevelt on the street and said, I miss the way your husband used to speak to me about my government, or the anecdote about the man who 
stood by the railroad, railway track as the funeral uh, train went by, and he was sobbing. And somebody said to him, did you know the president? And he replied, no, but he knew me. And it was so revealing as to uh, the way in which he had connected to uh, the mass of Americans and uh, restored a measure of hope. That, uh, and indeed, when he gave us the first fireside chat, he didn't talk about a banking crisis. He said, we're going to have a bank holiday, you see. They changed the, the campaign song originally was Anchors Away to uh, connect with his service as assistant secretary of the Navy, and they changed it to Happy Days Are Here Again. So uh, he didn't cure the Depression. Industrial mobilization did, but uh, he humanized the American industrial system. And to this day, we live with uh, so many of those things that he put in place, like uh, Social Security and uh, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. The TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, uh, you know, Medicare, which came with Lyndon Johnson much later, but uh, is really in many ways a, a spin-off from this New Deal. You talked about the fact that, that in many ways he was winging it as he went along, that it was experimentation, or as Roosevelt said, bold, persistent experimentation. To what extent yes. was there, there a guiding principle behind that? I mean, you talked about this idea of progressive idealism. To what extent did Roosevelt have a vision, not for the specific programs which were experimentation, but for a, for a, for a philosophy that was behind all of this? Yeah, well— you know, the philosophy was help people, give them hope, make them feel that the American free enterprise system is still a viable system of uh, government and of uh, social exchange. Uh, because this was a time when you had Nazism in Germany led by Adolf Hitler, fascism in Italy, Italy uh, led by Mussolini. Uh, Stalin in Russia, uh, communism, uh, socialism, uh, and Roosevelt was saying democracy, representative government can still work. And uh, he was proving that with the way in which he would put programs into place and uh, reach out to people and indeed win a, a massive landslide vote in 1936. You, you raise a really fascinating point because I think one of the people, one of the things people forget about the darkness of that particular time is that democratic capitalism itself was under siege, that people thought that it wasn't going to survive all of this. Exactly, exactly. And so uh, what, you, what you get is the feeling that these were, uh, I mean, you know, we always talk about Oh, these are difficult times. We're going through crisis. But there were three great crises, it seems to me, in the history of this country. Truly great crises. The first one being George Washington launching the Republic. And uh, the famous saying from Benjamin Franklin, uh, we have a Republic and uh, let's see if you can keep it, you see. And then, of course, Lincoln and the Civil War. And thirdly, FDR and the Great Depression. And then World War II, in which the challenge came from the Nazism and fascism and Japanese militarism as to whether uh, the American democratic 
free enterprise system could survive. Talk a little bit about his use of power and his intuitive understanding of how to get things done. Yeah, it's a, it's a very important point, I think, that nobody, I say, as a university teacher, I tell students, nobody can teach you how to be a great politician. There is an intuitive quality to all this. And uh, Roosevelt had it, the way his uh, distant cousin Theodore had it. You know, polling didn't become part of the uh, national landscape until uh, 1935. And even then, it was hardly so uh, reliable. But Roosevelt had people talking to him from around the country. He would send his wife, Eleanor, uh, on trips around the country to sound out sentiment, to hear what feelings were in Iowa, Indiana, uh, Massachusetts, California. Uh, He wanted to stay abreast of how the public was uh, feeling. And he would take these uh, trips across the country and they were called inspection trips to look at dams that were being built, and, uh, buildings that were being put up by the uh, PWA or the WPA. And uh, uh, he was hearing about the sentiment in the country, the feeling. And so he was, in that sense, a master politician and a master reflector of what the public's mood was. And it's demonstrated by the fact that he was able to win more presidential elections. Now, of course, nowadays we have the 22nd Amendment, which bars anyone from running more than twice, but it's inconceivable that anybody now could win four elections. And, uh, of course, Roosevelt was decisively helped by the onset of World War II. I don't think he ever would have had a third term if it weren't for uh, the outbreak of the war. But, again, he uh, measured public sentiment in the country, and the fact that he was really a a dying man when he ran for a fourth term, but he understood that as long as the war continued, uh, people wanted him for another term. But if the war was over, he wouldn't have run because he knew that uh, he wouldn't win again. But with the war still on in November 1944, it doesn't end until 45. And so uh, he was a master of reading uh, public mood. Right. One of the other aspects about Roosevelt is that in many ways he set the stage for the modern presidency, not necessarily in a positive way, in that he accomplished so much that and, and was such a skilled politician at it that we have come to expect similar kinds of things in our presidents, and maybe that's unrealistic, the, the standards that Roosevelt set. Yeah, it's it's a very good point. You know, there's a wonderful book by the historian William Luckenberg called In the Shadow of FDR. And he writes about how subsequent presidents from Harry Truman on uh, to Reagan, how much they stood in FDR's shadow and that they had to think in terms of uh, the way in which Roosevelt dealt with public opinion, dealt with uh, his cabinet dealt with uh, politicians, uh, you know, and and, uh, Ronald Reagan would give Saturday morning radio talks, you see, in an era of television, because he was imitating the fireside chats of 
FDR and all presidents since. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, the current incumbent, Trump, is doing it, but uh, Obama did it, and mm-hmm. certainly uh, the Bushes did it, and Clinton did it. And uh, so, you know, Roosevelt has made this sort of permanent mark on the White House and has set the standard as to uh, how you perform. And of course, uh, different times require different assessments and uh, ways of going about it. But uh, Roosevelt still remains a kind of uh, iconic figure and uh, uh, someone you want to look at in, in order to understand presidential leadership. Right. You know, you mentioned Reagan in the, in that mix. It's interesting <laughs> that one of the things you talk about with respect to Roosevelt is his ability to always put a positive face even on things that may have been failures or things that weren't going well. And and you, you liken his skills to those of a great actor. And, and you can't help but think yes. of Reagan's skills in that regard as well. Absolutely. Uh, you know, Roosevelt at one point said to Orson Welles, the Hollywood actor, he said to him, Orson, you and I are the two greatest actors in America. And that what Roosevelt was saying, essentially, that he is constantly on the stage because Roosevelt understood that his public image was terribly important. And in fact, there are no surviving photographs of him in a wheelchair uh, demonstrating his uh, mobility during his uh, presidency. In fact, the only public mention he ever gave of his uh, immobility or his paralysis was after he came back from New York conference uh, that he had in February 1945. On March 1, 45, he gave a speech to the uh, to a joint session of the Congress to report on uh, the results of the conference. And he began by saying, I know you will excuse me for sitting down, for I've just come back from a journey of 10,000 miles, and I wear 10 pounds of steel on each of my lower limbs. And it's the only reference he ever made to his uh, disability in public during the uh, 12 plus years he was in the White House. Did he ever use his disability as a way to disarm his opponents in some way? Well, he would try to, uh, in a sense, divert them from that. I mean, you know, he would have to be carried like a baby from his wheelchair when he would go on these, uh, go on fishing trips and would go on a destroyer or a cruiser and to get on a, a skiff or a boat that would go out into the sea for fishing, he had to be carried, you see, like a, like a child. And uh, he would joke. He'd make light of it. Uh, he would do these press conferences with reporters who would gather around his desk in the Oval Office. And at the end, he would say, well, boys, I think that's it because I, uh, now I have to run. See, he would use that uh, description of himself. I'm running. And uh, people, they forgot that, in fact, it served him psychologically to connect to the public because I think lots of people in the country thought that he had recovered from his disability, from his paralysis, and it gave them hope that he could now do for the country what he had done for himself, that uh, the country could recover from its uh, immobility, from its uh, depression, and uh, Roosevelt had done it 
in his uh, personal life so he can uh, lead us through this depression. And I think psychologically it was a very useful uh, connection that he made to the public. And did Roosevelt see politics and the presidency and all the other jobs that he had? How did he see it in the context of what we would consider today public service? Well, I think he did because, you know, he was a patrician and he was someone, he loved power. His idea of the presidency was Franklin Roosevelt in the White House, but he loved the idea of serving the country. Uh, there was a kind of sense of noblesse oblige that uh, this is what people of his class, people of his uh, training, of his background, of his uh, patrician beginnings should be doing. They should serve the country. They shouldn't be out there uh, trying to make money or, uh, uh, I don't know, work in private law firms. Uh, He didn't like being an attorney. He wasn't interested in that. He loved politics. Uh, he loved the, the scrapping that went on in politics. And he loved the opportunity to do wonderful things. And when he would take these trips, uh, the inspection trips, so to speak, across the country, he took enormous pleasure from seeing uh, the airports, the post offices, the dams that were being built, the conservation that was uh, being promoted, that the the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, that was bringing prosperity back to that part of the southern United States. Uh, These were the sources of tremendous satisfaction. Robert Dalek, his book is Franklin D. Roosevelt, A Political Life. Robert, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Uh, My pleasure. I appreciate the chance to do it. Thank you.